So United States presidents, they're not perfect. They come with their own individual challenges. So imagine, instead, if we had a king. Prince Harry, Duke of Sussex, Sussex, (laughs) he just released a book. Uh, Yeah, describing some of uh, the challenges of the royals. Uh, Maybe having a king wouldn't be so great either. The title of his book kind of forecasts the troubles for the kingdom. It's titled The Spare. So did you know that George Washington was asked if he wanted to be king uh, in the American Revolution? His troops offered him that role, King George. But as a praying Christian, he rejected that role because he believed there was only one king, which was the motto actually often shouted during the war, no king but King Jesus. So it takes rock-solid faith to live like that, to trust that. No king, but King Jesus. Randy Frazee, he shares an actual quote from the Revolutionary War found on the Catholic Education website. It says this, in 1774, report to King George of England, the governor of Boston noted, if you ask an American who his master is, he will tell you he has none, nor any governor but Jesus Christ. The pre-war colonial committees of correspondence soon made this the American motto, no king but King Jesus. So I think that George got it right. I think the Bible makes it clear that there is only one who sits on the throne. And we find it in chapter 16 of the story today. And in that, we find that human kings have gotten the nation of Israel into big trouble. They're actually now divided into two smaller kingdoms uh, at a time when there are stronger powers all around them. And now, as we begin the story, we find out that the northern kingdom uh, discovers that time's up. They've run out of time. The great Assyrian army marches against them, and in 1722, they are taken away into captivity. Have you ever heard of the lost tribes of Israel? kind of an interesting idea. It's, it's these 10 tribes that were taken away into captivity. You know, the idea is maybe, they're, 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 maybe they'll be found like a treasure, but the answer is no, they won't. They're gone for good. They were taken to the northern kingdoms, dispersed, and never regathered as God's people. It's a big warning, I think, and it's here for everyone to read in 2 Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse 13. It says, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I have commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. I think the last line written on the northern tribes of Israel is kind of an epitaph. could go on a memorial marker. It's inscribed like this. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are still there. So when this was written, they were still there. But they now are gone. God removed them from his presence, never to return. And that leaves... Only one small remnant of the former great kingdom of Israel, and it's this little tribe of Judah. And you have to wonder, what is God doing? Right? What is God doing as we read this story? Well, God promised to Abraham 
that he would make this, uh, he would make him into a great nation, as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. So think about this. Do you know how much sand's on the seashore? You know, when Cheryl and I went to Florida in December, I'm, I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of sand on the seashore. So this is a great nation that God is promising. And then uh, he, invites, or he tells them that he's going to uh, multiply this nation and that they are going to reveal who God is and uh, what God, how to relate with one another. And so as we followed along, uh, we read that God multiplied Israel and they put him into the land of Cana. They prospered under the first three kings and then things start to go sideways. The next kings begin to lead Israel into or away from God. And as they do, the people go the way the kings go. So how does a nation get led astray? It's a good question, right? Well, they slowly, generation by generation, king by king, abandon their faith in the Lord. As you already read in the chapter by chapter, if you are uh, in the story, then we're, we're seeing this pattern unfold. Again, I'm going to say it, they slowly, generation by generation, king by king, abandon their faith in the Lord. So if you're here today because you are committed to building a rock-solid faith that will stand the test of time, then pay attention to the king who bucked the trend, a king who stood his ground and saw victory in the face of insurmountable odds. I think the good news for you and I today is this. God does not abandon his people. Right? God does not abandon his people, and God will not abandon you. But it does take rock-solid faith to believe it's true. So how do we build that rock-solid faith? How do we do it in a way that's going to withstand impossible obstacles? Well, the king and a prophet show us the way in chapter 16. It's King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah. They're part of this faithful remnant of Judah. So let's start with the prophet Isaiah. When the northern kingdom fell in Assyria, all the army headed down towards Judah. And so as the invaders are at the doorstep, this prophet is standing down this whole army, trusting and relying on God alone. That's a big feat. So what builds that kind of faith? How could he do that? Well, a faith, how, do, how does he build a faith that trusts only in God, even in the face of overwhelming odds? So the key is this. Rock-solid faith starts for Isaiah when he met the Lord. I think this is a key for us as well. Rock-solid faith starts when we meet the Lord. Isaiah, he writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. So in this great vision, there's seraphim, they're flying around and calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. So this experience that he has in this vision, the temple fills with smoke. Imagine the sanctuary filling with smoke and the presence of God rumbling and shaking. And then I, Isaiah's response is, is really interesting. It's both awe, like wonder, amazing, and terror. Terror. Listen to how he reacts in verse 5. He says, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. So what's going on? Why is he feeling this terror in the presence of God? 
Well, Isaiah realizes that in the presence of God's holiness that he is in in that moment, that he and the nation of Israel are unholy. They are not like God, and they are, he's afraid. So during the time of the divided kingdoms, there's 38 kings. Only five of those are good kings, and the 33 other kings, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the people followed along. So then God sent nine prophets to the northern tribes over a period of 208 years to try to turn the people back to God, but they wouldn't listen. They refused to hear and obey. They refused to turn back. So I think all the weight of all that evil and all that sin now comes to the attention of Isaiah as he's standing in the presence of God and God's holiness. The scripture says, no one can see God and live. All this sin is crushing down on Isaiah. The New Testament writer, he picks up that thought in Hebrews 12, 14. He says, make every effort to live at peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see God. So think about our society today. Would you call it a holy culture? What about you? Would you call yourself a holy person? Are you perfect, like God? Well, if you are thinking, yeah, I'm going to raise my hand, I'm going to call you out on that. The Bible says, nope, sorry, you're not perfect. No one's perfect except the sinless Son of God. So Isaiah knows how serious this is, and now he's in God's presence. He says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I mean, he can't take it back. And, but something happens now that changes Isaiah's heart. It's really interesting. Pay attention, because I think this is an image of God's plan. One of the seraphim, like an angel, a creature, a holy creature, uh, goes to the altar and takes a piece of coal and touches it to Isaiah's lips. And then he says, your guilt is taken away. The passage says, your sin is atoned for. So, in other words, Isaiah was made holy because the Lord took away his sins. So, now, now, that, now that he is made holy, now he can be in God's presence. And that act then changed him from within. He's now ready to trust God completely, and he does. When the Lord asks then, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah, this newly reconciled prophet, he responds, here I am, send me. Are you prepared to respond like that? Here I am, Lord, send me. You know, a rock-solid faith that can withstand impossible obstacles begins with this idea of atonement. One uh, author describes it like this, at-one-ment, meaning made right with God. You know, and that's God's plan. If you remember, all, God is at work to bring his people back to him. So we're jumping ahead a little bit, but this is really crucial to who we are as followers of Jesus. And it's crucial if we want to build this rock-solid faith that we have to first accept that it only comes from God. Only God can make us right. It's an important and it's central to the story, and it's central to who we are and our identity as followers of Jesus. Only God can make us right. And the story is moving now to the fulfillment of this plan in the, as the coming Messiah, who is Jesus. So atonement means to cover over. Jesus is our atonement, his blood shed on the cross, covers over our sin and makes us right with God. 
In Isaiah's story, this uh, seraphim and the coal touching his lips is, is uh, an interpretation of this process. The result is Isaiah's sin is atoned for. He's made right with God, and he's prepared for his calling. So I think Isaiah's story teaches us that we start our calling at the cross, where Jesus atoned for our sin. And this is where unconquerable, rock-solid faith begins at atonement. So that's our first character, Isaiah. The second one is the king, Hezekiah. Of all the good kings, only five, he is one of them. And he's developed his faith uh, as he takes the throne at age 25. The Bible says he walked with God and brought reforms to Judah. He smashed the idol worship and he's leading Israel back to God's ways. And his example is bringing renewal in his time. It's a great thing, right? That people are coming to the Lord, they're returning, they're flourishing in God's presence and in God's ways, but that doesn't stop trouble from arriving at his doorstep. I think uh, walking with the Lord doesn't stop trouble from arriving at our step, doorstep either. So this king, he has to, uh, he, he, he's learning what it means to follow God with a great army at his doorstep. So this is a faith test for Hezekiah as Jerusalem comes under siege by Assyria. Do you ever feel like you're under a faith test? Where you feel like God is calling you out to trust him even though everything around us seems like that ain't going to work? As you read the story this week, it's easy to get the impression that all this is taking place in a day or two, but this is a siege which means that this is probably a long-term thing, months, maybe even years. But God is at work through the king of Judah. When Cheryl and I had the opportunity to go to Israel, we uh, went to this place uh, called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And it's actually where this uh, spring, Gion Spring it's called, is gushing up incredible water. It's kind of down deep uh, in, in the earth. And, but it was, uh, in Hezekiah's time, it was outside the city walls, so the water supply for Jerusalem was vulnerable to this siege. And so they dug a tunnel through solid rock to get uh, to the other side so that the water would be within um, the walls of Israel. Now, it's, it's just like a, an amazing work that they were able to dig this tunnel that said that it was built, that they came from both sides, and they met in the middle. Now, in those days, I assume that was not an easy task to do. And it's one of those kinds of things like that that help build Hezekiah's faith as he is uh, withstanding this siege. And I think for you and I, you know, those little acts of obedience that, that uh, result in seeing God at work, they help to build our faith, which is important, because there will be times in our lives when our faith is put to the test, like it is here for Hezekiah. You know, next week we're going to hear an update on the building project here. We've all been waiting for. You know, we believe we are acting in faith as we're taking a step to, to, do, to, to do this addition. And, you know, we, we, we're trusting that God is going to move through this project. And we're trusting because of our prior experience with God. We've seen God's faithfulness. You know, 29 years ago, this congregation built this facility at a time when it didn't seem like maybe there was much future for the church. But by faith, they stepped out and look at the facility we have. It's such a blessing. And then about a dozen years ago or so, we uh, put a new roof on the church when things were tight and it didn't really seem like the resources were there to do it. But stepping out in faith, God followed through and 
it accomplished this. And now we're stepping out in obedience because these steps have created faith for the future. So Hezekiah's big faith test happens as the Assyrian army sends a representative to Judah with terms of surrender. So is his faith rock solid enough to withstand? So the envoy to the king of Assyria, he has this message. He says, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing your confidence? You say you have counsel and the might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? So I had to look up this, uh, the, this king of Assyria's name because it's a little hard to pronounce. Somebody told me it was Snickereb, but that sounds good. It sounds tasty, actually. But uh, the, the way it was described uh, in this uh, reading, it's uh, Sennacherib. Sennacherib, he asks a great question. He says, if you want to build rock-solid faith that withstands if you want to build rock-solid faith that withstands the obstacles, and I think that's what we all want to do, then this is a question we ought to be asking ourselves every day. Here's the question. Who am I depending on? Who are you depending on? Who am I depending on? For Hezekiah, depending on himself and the army, that's out of the question. They, they, there's no way that they can defeat the Assyrian army. And the king of Assyria, he makes this astute observation. You know, human wisdom would say, look around, make an assessment. He says they must be dependent on the nation of Egypt to come to the rescue. You know, nations do that, right? They do that now. They come to agreements and consensus about what they can accomplish together. You know, who they'll go to war with. But, you know, consensus alone without counsel from God actually leads nations astray. We can do that too. We can plan, we can scheme, we can do our best, make deals. But if God's not in it, we know it's not going to accomplish God's purpose. And ultimately, it'll probably fail to do the good that we had hoped it would do. So Sennacherib, he tells Judah, this isn't going to work. Egypt is unreliable. So then his second conclusion is that Judah is trusting in their God. And this is where it gets really interesting. He argues, actually rather convincingly, that the God option for Judah is obsolete. It ain't going to work. He says, but if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? So Sennacherib, he, he reminds them of the facts that this God that they're depending on, wasn't that also the God of Israel and the northern tribes? And look what happened to them. Their God wasn't able to save them. So it, I think this happens all the time. God gets discredited. But it's not because of God, it's because the people don't really know who God is. So my take on uh, the political correct critique of our culture is that there are some things that need to be brought to our attention, right? There are some things that need to be addressed. No culture is perfect. No nation is perfect. But the worst of these critiques seem to suggest that the Bible has it wrong and that faith in the God of the Bible is somehow to blame for culture's woes. I think, I think that's a huge misreading of Scripture, a huge misunderstanding of who God is. I think that the Bible kind of defends itself against these false narratives. You know, if people are willing to read and understand it, you know, the reason the northern tribes fell is not because their God was flawed, but because they never followed the God of Scripture. 
is because they didn't trust and obey the God of Scripture. You know, God's intention for society is not what Israel represented to its neighbors. And as a result, King Sennacherib, he has a false idea of who God is. You know, as far as he thinks, that God, Judah's God, is a defeated God. And so I think that's a warning for us. Be careful, church. Be careful about how you are representing God to the world. Because people are listening. And we want to present God for who God truly is, not a self-made or a nationalistic little God that is nothing more than an idol or a talking point. We want to represent the one true God. And that means we need to trust God. We need to grow in our understanding of God. We need to walk in obedience to God, the God of the Old and the New Testament, and all the while being led by the Holy Spirit. So if you're doing this, then you are revealing God to the nations. So now Sennacherib, he makes a really challenging observation. And this is where, again, rock-solid faith has to do its difficult work. This isn't easy stuff. So he argues, actually, that Israel or Judah can't get out of this because the Lord himself told me to march against this country. So the king of Assyria says, God told me to march against you and defeat you. So here's the question. How do you argue with someone who says, God told me? Did you ever face that? God told me. How do you argue against it? Well, you may not be able to argue against it, but you do need to discern if it's true. Judah's faith depends on the truth. Did God say that or not? So this is where mature faith or rock-solid faith is needed. Isaiah the prophet not only had that, but he experienced this idea of hearing from God and developed that, and he recognizes that this message is a direct challenge to God's identity. So let's see how this plays out. The king's message changes tactics. He starts speaking in uh, uh, the messengers. They start speaking in the Hebrew language. And so they're no longer giving a message to Hezekiah the king, but now they're talking to the people. They're trying to discredit the king and uh, make the people change their mind. So they shout, This is what the king of Assyria says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. So he offers favorable peace treaty and uh, he says, surrender and choose life. He said it's the best option. So Judah has a choice. According to King Sennacherib, choose to trust King Hezekiah, trust the God of Yahweh and die, or choose the king of Assyria and their God and live. So trust the king and, and Yahweh, die, or choose the God of Assyria and live. So it sounds like a tough choice. The envoy throws one more zinger for good measure. They say, no army has been able to stand against Assyria, and you can't either. So I think it's a good point if we're facing a difficult situation. If you are in a position where you're unsure of the outcome, where faith says, no matter what, trust God, you can uh, do as the king. Judah faces impossible odds, and he asks a good question. Questions we need to ask, who are we depending on? I'm going to 
run through quick how uh, Hezekiah answers these questions, that who is he depending on, and uh, some steps that we can take when we're trying to discern what's the next step. So the first thing he does is assess reality. It says, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. We have to know what reality is. Sometimes it's easier just to skip that part, just to imagine that things are all going to work out and it's going to be good. But we need to know, what are we facing? And if we're not sure, we need to find that out. You know, if you're getting a health diagnosis, you don't just go in and get a medication or a treatment. First, you have to go through the process, right? You have to be seen. You have to uh, do some tests. And then, after we figure out what's going on, get a diagnosis, then a treatment plan can be made. You know, that's the first step, is learn our situation. So Hezekiah is determined that the army can't beat this Assyrian army. So he does the only thing that faith can do. And it's not surrender. Instead, it's to take it to the Lord in prayer. It says, then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Spread all this out before the Lord. For Hezekiah, this is a matter of mistaken identity. And Assyria really has no idea who Yahweh is. And so he prays this prayer. I think it's a good prayer, one that we can listen to, one that we can pray. Hezekiah prayed, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words the Son of Cherub has sent to ridicule the living God. Is it, it is true, Lord, that the kings have laid waste to these nations and their lands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. Hezekiah, he knows the truth. He prays the truth, and then he asks God to act. And it's important of why he's doing this. He says, deliver us so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the one true God. This is for Judah's good and for God's glory so that the world may know. And for each one of us, every difficult situation has a greater purpose at stake. So God is revealing himself to the world through his people. And you are witnesses in good times and in bad. So what happens? Well, in the story, it's a pretty amazing outcome. God delivers his answer to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah. He says, I have heard your prayer. And then he announces judgment on the king of Assyria. He says, he will not enter the city or shoot an arrow. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. So that night, after this siege of Jerusalem, uh, the world's greatest army is defeated as an angel of the Lord goes through the camp and kills 185,000 soldiers. So if we imagine that, it's almost inconceivable. Who would have guessed? Who would have thought? Who would have even imagined that that would be the outcome of trusting God? But God delivered through this miraculous event. History reveals what was promised, that through the line of David, through this good king Hezekiah, through the line of Judah, that a Messiah will come. And yet they still are taken into captivity. They still end up in Babylon. But Isaiah promises that the Lord will return them, that the Lord will fulfill his good promises to them, and that the Messiah will come through him. And we discover through all of this about our faith, that a rock-solid faith is cultivated through a lifelong relationship with Jesus so that it is ultimately able to stand 
against overwhelming odds. It's the kind of faith that you and I will need to weather life's storms that are ahead. And they are coming. So stand strong. Because in the end, the world will know there is no king but King Jesus. I invite us to rise as we sing our closing song. Lord, we thank you that you are King Jesus. We thank you, like Isaiah, that you have atoned for us at the cross. And Lord, you have prepared us to answer your call. When you say, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? May we respond, here I am, Lord. Send me. Send me.